So to teach, I always found that to be a great honor. It's a great honor to be allowed to talk about these texts, articles, chapters, theories, so on, made by people who are so much smarter than me. And the chance to convey that to people who have decided that I am a person trustworthy enough to actually convey that. I think it's almost a sacred moment. And I think it's a moment that you have to respect and you have to show some respect for the ritual of teaching. So if I have a class that I have the honor of having multiple times over a term, I always dress up for them, at least in the beginning. So I'll plan out what I'll wear. I'm not going to go completely corporate, like, you know, a, a, a dark and stuff, but I'll, I'll dress up and I'll dress up in, in what I guess you could call Ivy League. So I'll, I'll plan it out. I'll, I'll put up the right button down colored shirt, a tie or a bow tie in some instances, make sure it matches, make sure the belt matches the shoes, wearing nice shoes, no sneakers, always wearing like nice handmade trickers or looks or something like that a suit or at least some nice chinos and a nice blazer to show that I care about what we're supposed to do now. We're supposed to talk about really important big ideas and we're supposed to form our own opinion of them on an informed basis and to show that respect to the students that I actually put on a tie for them. I actually think that's a way to communicate also in my physical appearance that I respect their time and I respect the content of the lecture and I also expect them to respect their time, my time and the content. And, you know, then I walk out the door, drop off the kids and uh, and be ready to lectures. And this is often very early in the morning. I love morning lectures. I think it's nice to start your day sort of like working out in the morning. You know, you then your body is, is you know, burning fat the rest of the day. I think if you start your morning with a nice lesson, you know, then you spend the rest of the day thinking about how does that impact my life, my view of society, my business and so on. So, you know, getting up early picking out the right clothes maybe the night before getting the kids ready saying goodbye to them in a nice way and then hitting the classroom that's a perfect way to start your day let me paint a picture of a person in your mind imagine a man he's tall clean shaven and completely bald his outfit consists of a pair of navy blue chinos, shiny shoes, a buttoned-up shirt, and a striped tie. He lives in Frederiksberg, a wealthy neighborhood bordering on Copenhagen, with his wife and kids. He's a busy man. He works as a training manager at Sabers, a liberal free market think tank, but he's also an external lecturer at CBS with a PhD degree. Can you imagine the man I'm talking about? His lifestyle, what he does in his spare time, and his political and ideological beliefs. Well, I guess you'll have to wipe your inner slate clean, because this guy is something else. My name is Casper Christensen, and this is the first episode of a CBS Wire podcast series we've decided to call Outside the Box. It's a series where we meet some of the most colorful people at CBS who, with their stories and personalities, help to transform the university from being regarded as square and formal into a multidimensional and inclusive playground. And without further ado, I will hand the mic to the person I described to you before. Here's Stefan Kierkegaard Slyk Madsen. 
I have many different sides to me, which I never thought was odd, but to many people are. And when I tell people my background, people often were surprised, right? Like, you wouldn't expect an old punk rock boy to be a classic liberal, but I think it matches quite well, right? So to me, there's never any, any hypocrisy or stuff like that. It's just part of being a whole person. So I guess to some people, I'm a complex person. For myself, I'm pretty simple. Most of what determines your outcomes in life is your behavior. And uh, a lot of that of going to school is also learning how to behave differently and stuff like that. And it's, that's a constant journey. But then, of course, there's also a lot that's still genetics, right? Like our words of a third is probably genetic. And I think my composition, how I was born, I'm a very curious person. And I also like things to change fast, I like the dynamics. It's one of the reasons why I, I enjoy business and why I studied business. But at the same time, I am fundamentally, ideally an anarchist, whether that can ever be achieved, maybe not, but I think it's a good thing to try to strive for a world where authority is voluntarily given. So I don't mind hierarchies, I don't mind people being boss and stuff like that, as long as it is voluntarily given. And that's just something I think is genetic. None of my as it's not something I was brought up with necessarily. Like my, my parents didn't talk a lot about that. We talked a lot about society and stuff, but we didn't talk about that. It's just something that's innate within me. My parents are not academics, but I've always been fascinated by that, like, you know, being the smart guy in the class. I basically read a lot of science growing up of all sorts of different science, whatever I could get my hand off in the local uh, library, but especially a lot of social science. Like, I read all the major works that I could get a hold of, so like... Uh, uh, Karl Marx, uh, Mein Kampf, for instance, these kind of things. Uh, not so much of the classical liberal stuff. That came later, but a lot of the other stuff I, I read and a lot of social democratic stuff as well and these kind of things. I've always just been reading that. And um, then I always loved history. And I remember when I was filling out my papers for my undergrads, which was a business administration and philosophy at CBS, when I was filling that out, I remember sitting there and I thought like, okay, so I would probably prefer to study history. But... I'm not going to be the world's best historian, I was pretty sure. So I felt like that's too much of a gamble. So I put that further down. Then I remember I thought about studying geology because like, I was a little bit fascinated with oil and kind of stuff. I thought like, yeah, that was probably too technical for me still. So I thought, okay, what, what would really motivate me and give me a life that I wanted? And business is so cool because business is about helping other people, right? Like you make money if you make products that improve people's life more than they would otherwise have by keeping the money, right? So all things being equal, business is about helping other people, right? And profit comes from being effective in how you help other people. I didn't understand that 100% back then, but I understood that connection, right, to a positive change in the world. So I thought, like, all right, let's study business, right? And then I thought the philosophy thing sounded interesting. So, so I went into that, like, you know, I could see it was a way to a nice life that was actually also very meaningful, which I think is important. So um, so it sort of came from that. But I've always been very interested in this, and I still am. The arm I'm looking at now has Millwall Football Club tattooed on it, right? Mm. So this is my my football team and it's something that I cherish a lot about, right? So over here, the quote on the bottom there says, hardly getting uh, over it, hardly getting used to getting by, which is a reference to an old Huskadu song, mm -hmm. which was later covered by a band called uh, Farside. And it's basically all about how we have to die. <laughs> and that's a hard truth, but we have to face it, right? Mm -hmm. Hardly getting over it, hardly getting used to getting by. And 
that probably also draws into why I'm an economist, right? Because part of economics, not the main part, but part of it is thinking about how we make do with limitations, right? Like, mm. you know, you're limiting your resources and your mental capacity in your time on earth, right? Lots of economics is about, you know, we don't have infinite time. If if you live to be 500 years old, you will probably relatively easy be able to afford your dream car, but you don't, so you have to make choices and then you're probably never going to own whatever dream car you have because, well, you have to buy a house for your family and these kind of things, right? So so I'm not saying that this was an econo- economic-inspired tattoo, not at all, but I'm saying that like, it sort of fits and uh, and all of my tattoos sort of have these kind of connections. I have another one uh, on my arm that's uh, uh, the chalice from a church spilling over and uh, it has like the Alpha Omega sign on it. And then it has the um, the work hard, fear God, which is sort of like my sort of like something I think it's good to live by, right? Like make an effort, right? Understand that the world can, to say it directly, screw you over once in a while. The God part, right? Like if the world really wants to do you harm, well, that's it. But for most part, if you just work hard and you make do your due diligence, these kind of things, you'll be able to get by quite quite good, right? But it's also sort of funny. Some of them take on meanings of their own. So I have a uh, sort of like a new school version of the Statue of Liberty on one leg because I thought it was a fun motive, one of my favorite artists. And she's actually holding a couple of records by Matt Ball, one of my favorite hardcore punk bands. Uh, but then on the other leg, I used to have another tattoo, which I really didn't like. I thought it gave up some warm connotations, so I made a cover up. But there was a lot of black in that. So the only thing that really worked was to make a large uh, picture of the Grim Reaper. Yeah. <laughs> so now I like have a Statue of Liberty on one leg and death on the other, right? Uh, big, big ones. And then all of a sudden I realized, hey, wait a minute. This could be read like, give me liberty or give me death, which was really cool, but I never planned that. So <laughs> sort of just like emergent meanings of your tattoo. So I was thought what that was magical. Fun. Yeah, exactly. Just sort of like, yeah. no, yeah. But that is probably true, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're in a room where there's a big sign on the wall that says Frederiksberg and Millwall. So this sign here is uh, we're looking at now. Uh, the listeners can't see it, but it's carved. So it's like in 3D carved in wood by one of my, my mates, who's actually a Leeds fan from the UK, but whatever. <laughs> so um, when I went to, um, went to kindergarten, that kind of stuff, like everybody had a Spanish team or an English team. And I actually didn't like football that much. But I saw Millwall, and Millwall has this amazing lion jumping on, as you can see on the wall. Mm. And I just said I was a Millwall fan. And then as I grew up with FC Copenhagen, I followed them a lot because a lot of my friends did. But also the Millwall had also a punk rock connotation, these kind of links. And it became very cheap to go to London, and I started traveling over there. And I have a lot of friends over there now, right? So, So for instance, the week before the lockdown... The last that one week prior to that, precisely, I went over to see our youth team play Chelsea's youth team at, at Stamford Bridge, right? So it's just something that matters a lot. I have lots of friends over. And one thing about Millwall is that there's a lot of humor in this club, right? Like our official slogan is no one like us. We don't care. And uh, like, you know, we we were founded on the Isle of Dogs, right? Like our, our stadium was called the Den and these kind of like, uh, it used to be, not, not anymore, but our old stadium was at the end of a street called Cold Blow Lane, Right, like so, there's all these like aesthetics in it. So at one point, the team talked to me about whether I wanted to make it things fan club, and I didn't because I didn't. I wanted to be able to control where I saw football with. Right, and Millwall has a rumor, so you know you don't want to 
get everybody involved with that. <laughs> so <laughs> to be a bit snobbish here. <laughs> so I said, no, I don't want to do this. But then I came up with the idea of doing like Millwall Fred Expert. So we have like a Fred Expert fraction of Millwall fans. And for people who know both London and Copenhagen, that's really funny because Fredericksburg is like a posh part of Copenhagen, right? That would be that South Kensington in London or something like that. And Millwall would be Sudhavn in the old days, maybe <laughs> Amar, something like that, right? Like, yeah. you know, no, and not like not like Amar Sudhavn now, but how it was like 30 years ago or something like that, right? So, so you know, it's sort of funny. It's sort of like, you know, <laughs> it's this like mixture, right, between yeah. the two things. And people who know both cities think it's so funny. And we have like a huge Danish flag with the with Millwall on it and Fredericksburg and the cross and these kind of things. Uh, so there's lots of these connotations. There's a lot of human involved and stuff like that. And, and it's a big part of our family now. My oldest kid, he has his name engraved in marble on the den, right? Like it says, welcome Ludwig and his birthday. So it's a big thing. But it's also really cool because now he's going to school and everybody's wearing these, like the winner teams, right? They will wear Barcelona, PCG, whatever, whatever is in favor. And he will show up Millwall shirts. And I can teach him that we do not love Millwall because they win. We love Millwall because they're Millwall. And I don't love him because he's supposed to win anything. I love him because he's him. And that's actually a really great thing to teach your kid. I really love my students. I love the time we have together and I'll do a lot for them and I'll really care for them. But I think many of them not necessarily get that vibe of me because I do dress formally to an extent and I do expect them to partake and I do expect them to take this serious and I have a very low tolerance for people who are wasting their time and the privilege of going to school and then they, in a country like Denmark where they actually pay for it most of the time or and it's free tuition all this kind of thing I think they have to respect that so I do come across doing the lesson as a bit of a hard ass but people who take the time to take the course seriously and exactly we will find that I'll do a lot to help them uh, including outside the classroom I don't mind like introducing them to people uh, suggesting more readings, these kind of things. Uh, but I do require that mutual respect. And I think we should require that. There's an authority in lecturing that has to be earned, but also has to be respected. In the 90s, when I got into punk rock, that was like the decade of the skate punks, right? Like no effects, bad religion, Pennywise, Slackwagon. And I'll always have a fondness for that. But I very quickly got into a lot of British stuff. So stuff like Cox Barra, uh, The Rods, Infrared, these kind of like uh, street bands, street punk bands, which is what have been my main thing most of the time. And then, of course, a lot of hardcore, like New York hardcore, LA hardcore. So Madball, I already mentioned. It could be Terror from Los Angeles, these kind of bands. So... So, so this kind of stuff, right? And I am still crowd surfing today. I don't know if you're allowed to do that actually after Corona. So I haven't been to a punk rock show after the restriction lifted. But, uh, but yeah, crowd surfing this kind of stuff, uh, uh, pokering and that kind of stuff. I think it's fun. It's a great outlet of energy, and actually, it sort of mimics the market, which is interesting. Okay. Oh. Yeah, because if you don't know a lot about market, you would think it's about cheating people, which it isn't at all. It's about helping other people do what they want to do. And a mosh pit is a lot like the same thing when it works really well. So you you bump into each other because you agreed that that's a norm here. That's a social order, a spontaneous order we have. We can bump into each other now. But if somebody falls down, you don't jump on them. You hook them up. And you're generally trying to do it in a way that doesn't hurt other people, right? And then once in a while, some jerk that doesn't get it comes along and sort of ruin it. That kind of person is typically quickly dealt with, right? Like Because they ruin it for everybody. 
And a market is a lot like the same thing. It's like a spontaneous order. There's no rules in a mosh pit, but then, you know, it still works. And then sometimes sort of rules and spontaneous things happen, like, you know, a, uh, like running around in a circle or when you went to see a hardcore band, like Sick of It All, for instance, they have this, like, the wall of death, I think they call it, right, where everybody lines up on either side, right? This is obviously sort of planned, but it's also emergent. You don't know exactly what's happening. So there's a lot of analogies between a mosh pit and market, so I always think about which thing is sort of funny. The punk culture is a lot about breaking out from something that's existing. What do you want to break out of? Oh, that's a really great way of framing it. I think there is a lot in me. There's a lot of opposition to mediocrity. There's a lot of opposition to a welfare state that doesn't really help the weak people, but is more about lining the pockets of the middle classes. I don't think that's a really great societal system. So there's a lot of that breaking away from that social democratic vision, right? But then also... Within punk, you have this DIY ethic, do-it-yourself ethic. So, like, if if you think there should be a show in your hometown, make one. Like, if there's a band that doesn't make the music, like, make one. If Like, when I was young, I made fan scenes, right? Like, where I interviewed bands and these kind of stuff. Probably a horrible journalistic product, but whatever, I did it because I thought it was interesting and fun, and I thought it was there. And that is basically another word for entrepreneurship. Like, it is entrepreneurship. It's just packaged differently, right? Uh, and it might not necessarily be for profit, but, you know, it's still entrepreneurship, right? It's acting entrepreneurial, which I think is really cool. And that, that's something that I took away and, and still cherish a lot from from punk rock is this DIY ethic, right? So, which I think is, is good for society fundamentally. Another thing here is a giant jukebox. What is that all about? So that was part of like teaching my kids to uh, to enjoy the physical aspects of music. So I picked this up, uh, and the idea is to fill it with the uh, with singles from various songs that I think is important. So the first one will be uh, the Millwall. We have like an old single song, right? And then uh, go from there. There's supposed to be a lot of punk on there, but also a lot of reggae stuff and this kind of thing. And it's an original Rugarola from '64. And as you can look at right now, it used to probably stand in a horrible German pub somewhere because it's like it's like a lot of 80s songs and German uh, uh, stuff. But anyway, it's the idea is to change it around and and then give them this physical aspect of uh, of music. What's really fascinating with this as well is that it's all mechanical, and it's amazing what this thing can do. Like it can actually register how many plays each song gets, even though it's there's nothing computer in there, there's nothing electronics in that sense. It's all mechanical. And also what happens back in how the business model was, one of the business models at least, were that you actually had these on subscription. And then people went around and made sure to uh, to put in the popular singles in it. So they were changed around all the time. And it was part of the feedback, if you go back to like the 50s and 60s, of the charts, right? So the charts was composed not of just of the record people bought, but also what was being played in, uh, in jukeboxes. So, you know, you collect all this data and, and phone and somebody would sit by hand and come. It's really fascinating, right? It's it's how we used to do work that we often forget, right? Though, like somebody had somebody probably had the job of sitting and well typing all these all this stuff that came out from jukeboxes all over the country. It's really fascinating. So it's also that reminder, right? That the work work is changing, right? And it's a beautiful machine as well. It looks sort of like an American car, right? Just yeah. aesthetic, right? This, yeah. Well, uh, uh, like when you turn it on, there's lights on and stuff. It looks very much like it's an American car coming at you. It's really cool. There's obviously a lot of things that fascinate you about the world of academia. But if you had to pull out 
one thing, what would that be? Oh, that's a really good question, actually. So I think science done proper is actually very fascinating. Why? It's fascinating because it's an attempt to try to improve our knowledge of the world. And a lot of science is not done that way. A lot of science, like a lot of people think it's science just because somebody is employed at a university. Mm. Obviously, it isn't. Science is about constant doubt. Science is about, you know, trying to de-bias yourself with systematic literature reviews, these kind of things. But when people actually make that effort and try, I think it's really interesting to see what we can learn about the world, right? And that's really fascinating. One of my personal KPIs, so to speak, <laughs> is that every week I have to read here somehow consume knowledge that I don't understand or do not agree with up front. So sometimes it could be like a physics paper that would be in the category of stuff I don't necessarily understand, but I can try to make sense of it. But other times it might be, you know, reading a paper within another school of uh, social science or listening to a podcast or something. And I very deliberately do not do this to confirm my own beliefs. Quite the opposite. I actually do this to always challenge myself. And that means also over time you do update and change your views and you become smarter and stuff like that. There's a couple of things like for me, for instance, the role of the family didn't used to put a lot of emphasis on that. And of course you say, yeah, well, now you have a family, so now you do. Yeah, but I also say a lot of it's actually also reading up on like the value of the family and, and, and that kind of, you know, it's an interesting society there, right? Which was a hard journey because as a staunch individualist, I didn't really want to admit that. So it's totally natural for me to dress semi-formal with, with ties and so on, but it's also very natural for me to, to dress how I dress most of my life in a punk rock t-shirt, a studded belt and sneakers or boots and stuff like that. And I think it's very important to learn that capitalism is about tolerance and it's about challenging your own prejudices in a lot of ways, right? So a way to convey that to my students is actually in, in the last lesson I have with them, I will plan to show up in a completely different dress, right? So I'll show off in like... Uh, in what I'll typically wear in the weekends, which is like a punk rock t-shirt and, and starter belt and so on, all, all my tattoos showing and stuff like that. I won't make a big deal about it, but I can see they're shocked, right? It's a completely different person. And I think many of them at that point comes around and, and they get to understand that, you know, don't judge a book by its covers, right? Like, you know, actually read what's inside the book, which is part of what going to university is all about. Um, and uh, both things are natural to me, but it is, of course, true that when I also, when I get home, I'm, I, I take off my tie and I put on a punk rock record and I relax with my kids and my wife. Um, but I think there's a nice point when you have the chance to teach a class over several times to, you know, show them this respect first and then challenge their beliefs afterwards. If I meet you in, let's say, 10 years, how will you be like by that time? Do you think? I think again, a lot of it will be the same. Like I probably won't be able to skate anymore. Like it's it's coming up on the last legs as it is, but I'll try. I'll still do it once in a while. But I think like when it's probably the end. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of I'll still go and watch football whenever I can. I'll still go to shows. So a lot of it will be the same, but also other things will be different. I think that's also part of the progression of life. I remember I was standing at a, I think it was actually a Coxbury show at Vega a couple of years ago. And I was sort of depressed because I was one of the youngest persons there. And uh, 
underground scenes, subculture scenes strive on young people coming and contributing and making it better. And in the past, you had to do that with punk rock. Like you couldn't just go online and order the clothes and stuff like that. You had to like make a lot of the stuff yourself, basically, or you had to go out and make shows and these kind of things. And there's no young people really doing that anymore. I was like one of the youngest guys that show, and this is a couple of years ago, so probably 35. And I was just like, I was very dressed. And I was talking to an old good friend of mine who's a really cool guy. And he was like, I was saying, this is dying. It's dead. Like, is punk rock really dead? And then he just looks at me cold in the eyes and says, it will die with us. Stephen Kierkegaard, look, Madsen, thank you for your time. Cool. Thank you for having me on. It was really fun. It was a fun little conversation. And so ends the first podcast in the series Outside the Box by CBS Wire about the nerdy punk rocker and Millwall lecturer Stefan Kierkegaard's look, Messen. I hope you enjoyed his company as much as I did. Please tell all your colleagues, co-students and friends at CBS about our podcast. And please listen again next time when you'll meet a new, equally eccentric and interesting person from CBS. My name is Casper Christensen. Over and out.